so appreciate this guy, Ernesto, for leading us and, and leading our team. And you know, I appreciate, I appreciate our tech team. You know, they, they, work, they work tirelessly to make sure that every service is at the, the greatest excellence that we can offer to God. And I appreciate our team back there. And Ernesto, this, week, this past week or week, week and a half ago, found out they're having a boy. They're having a boy. And uh, just, I'm just excited for them. And by the way, Pastor Josh and Hope over in Shelby, they're expecting as well. So here's a question everybody's asking, which water fountain did you guys drink from? Just so everybody knows, which one? You know what? We had a lot of Crossroads coffee and tea. Oh, Crossroads coffee and tea. Thank you, Ernesto. We love you guys. Appreciate you. Congratulations, a boy. By the way, I'm, I'm an expert. I, I know about boys, so uh, I can help you. Got nothing with the girls, but I know about boys. So, uh, no, we're excited for them. Excited for Josh and Hope over in Shelby. And, uh, yeah, drink, drink away. Drink away. One of the greatest ways to grow the church is to have kids. And so... Uh, Couples, we invite you uh, to drink the coffee and tea here at Crossroads. We're not telling what we're putting in there. Um, hey, what a great time. What a great celebration of the goodness and faithfulness of God as we sang about him. You know, free people tell people they're free, don't they? And we just t- talked about the chains of sin and death being broken. Uh, free people talk about their freedom. And one of the things I love about our church is, is this idea that we want to we be a church that reflects the mission of Christ. Uh, we we want to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. We have teams that just came back from Cambodia. of a team coming back from Guatemala this week. And uh, amazing things that God does when we go and share the good news that Christ has broken the chains and set us free. And what I love about our church, though, is we don't worship the mission. We worship the one who sent us, Christ. The only reason the mission is the mission, the only reason the gospel is the gospel, the only reason the good news is good news is because God is the one that gave it to us. Isn't it true? Amen. It's God. It's not us. It's not just our mission. So many churches and so many ministries, they, they, they worship the mission more than the, the missioner, the, the one who commissions us in, to go into all the world. And we're seeing that even here in our own area. And as you know, one of our strategies really has been to, to grow larger by getting smaller. We, we realize that there is a big target on the back of big churches, and big churches in our culture today are kind of taking a, a lot of heed, and, and, and there's a lot of question about what happens behind the scenes. And so one of the ways that we, we want to confront that in our culture is really helping neighbors reach their neighborhoods, and, and that is through this, this multi-campus kind of venue idea where we have church, crossroads churches in, in many different places, and they're all connected together uh, as one church in many locations. And so it's part of our strategy, and we're seeing how that is working. I, I know at our city center, uh, we've got some great things that are coming up, even to, to help connect to the inner city, the urban center of our city. Uh, man, this past week, we had a clothing drive. There were 120 people, and they were not only given free clothes, but they were able to be talked to. I love that about our, our city center, Pastor Jesse and Monica, who lead that, and many of you that have been a part of that. It's not just meeting needs. It's saying, let's talk about what's happening in your heart. Let's talk about what's happening behind the scenes. And there are stories that we could share. We just can't because of the names of those people. There are stories of how God is impacting lives through our city center. Hopefully, uh, eventually, we're going to be able to share some of those. But they're, they're intricate and detailed. And many of them involve records. And uh, they involve court cases. And they involve choices that uh, would embarrass people. Uh, and yet, God is freeing people. God is working. 
I think about what's happening in Shelby. It was fun this past week. I got to talk to somebody from our Shelby campus who was baptized at our Shelby campus and just excited about what God is doing in their family. And we're excited about what God is doing in, in Shelby. And then uh, we have the privilege to launch. By the way, we, we, have, we have a service that happens every Friday night in the, in the prison, the local prison. It's a crossroads service in the prison. Uh, it's amazing to see what God is doing there. Again, changed lives. We had uh, over 100 people baptized in the prison uh, last year. Amazing what God is doing. Yeah, it's somewhere near there. I can't remember the exact number, but it's right around there. It's amazing what God is doing. Uh, and then we have our launch coming up of our Lexington campus. And I, I stopped by there the other, the other evening and, and just spent some time walking through there by myself and just, just spending some time praying for that place, that building, that building that was unexpected that a church came and, and said, hey, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to exist anymore. Would you consider uh, this building for ministry? And uh, our team has done a great job. I think a great Crawfus, our facilities coordinator, man, he has organized a team and they have made that place as beautiful as this place is, made it ready. It's a mini crossroads. And uh, we're excited about the lives that we changed. Again, the mission is to go proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms lives. And, and so we're looking for people that will be a part of that Lexington campus. Uh, we, we are going to be launching. Our preview service is, is August 11th. Our launch date is September 8th. And our hope is to use that place as a, as a center, as a hub for Lexington and Belleville and those areas surrounding there. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, we're looking for people that would go there and serve. Whether it's on first impressions, whether it's in the children's ministry, whether with, uh, uh, with the technical side of things, whether it's with, uh, with parking lot team, all of those things that we need. If you would be interested in being a part of that, stop by the tables on your way out. You can sign up. You can be a part of that. You can get some more information. You can talk about maybe your role there. Or if you're willing to be a part of backfilling the needs here. So as we send people, I know we sent nearly 100 people to Shelby. As we send people, we need people to backfill. And so if you're here and you'll be willing to fill some holes here, you've committed to staying at Park Avenue, would you be willing to fill those holes that'll be left as a result of those people who will commit to going to Lexington? So you'll see some people walking around. They have these cool shirts on. All the cool kids are wearing them. That says a Lexington campus. Stop by the tables. Talk to somebody. Uh, and there are many of you, I know some of you that have already said, hey, we feel committed to go to election, and we feel led to help be neighbors who reach our neighborhood. And uh, we hope that many, many more of you will. We believe that that setting is going to be a fantastic setting to reach more people with the gospel of Christ. By the way, it is going to be a video venue. What that means is this. That means that live, and we set this up so that the live feed will go straight there for the service. So what I know is that 80% of you don't look at me during the sermon. I see it every week. I look out and I'm looking right at you and your eyes are turned to these screens on the side. And so it's going to be the exact same thing. There'll be a live praise team. Pastor Ron Biddle's our campus pastor. You'll hear from him. The sermon will be just like you're sitting in here, but in a smaller setting. And you'll be watching it just like most of you watch it in here uh, on the screens. And so uh, it'll be live. It'll be right there. And so we hope you'll be a part of that. Uh, we're hoping to reach that community with the gospel of Christ. So uh, we're excited. Lexington and launch coming up. And uh, we believe God's going to do some amazing things as we continue to uh, reach out in the mission. You know, a church should be both deep and wide. Deep in the sense of proclaiming the word of God unapologetically and yet wide in the sense that we want to reach people with the gospel. The greatest need in our world is Jesus. And so we want to be both deep and wide in that way. We want to balance both discipleship and gospel proclamation together. Uh, if you would, this morning, take your Bibles out and turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 786, Habakkuk chapter 3, page 786. If you're here without a Bible, take that with you as a gift from our church. We're in a series 
through this small yet powerful book, Habakkuk. It is a small prophetic book that if you read the Old Testament, you probably just skip right over it, but inside of it, there's some absolutely beautiful realities of what we face in life. And if you remember, we talked about how Habakkuk finds himself in a difficult situation. The nation of Babylon is rising. Assyria right now is in control. Egypt is kind of playing behind the scenes. And Judah, little old Judah, has lost its fervency for God. In fact, Judah finds itself returning many people to idolatry, turning to uh, walking away from God instead of toward God. And so Habakkuk comes to God and he cries out. He sees the injustice in Judah. And he cries out, God, how long? How long is this going to last? How long will your law remain in a coma? Remember that verse 2, it says the law is in a coma, literally there in the Hebrew. It's in a coma. How long will this go on where your law doesn't matter anymore? How long will people do whatever they want? How long will the injustice reign? And so he says, how long? And then he questions God with the question, why? Why? Why is this happening? God, why? what is your plan? What are you doing behind the scenes? Why are you allowing this? Don't you see what's taking place? What are you going to do about the things that you see? And we said, what happens in life, and we all face them, when it seems that what we see contradicts what we believe. When, when what we see happening around us or what we experience in our lives contradict what we believe about God being in control, about God being sovereign. And that's exactly the pinch point, the hinge point of Habakkuk's story is he sees things that don't match what he believes about God. We find in chapter 1 that God is gracious to respond. God responds and says, Habakkuk, I've got this figured out, don't worry. I've got a plan. And the plan is the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are going to come in and they're going to take Judah captive. They're going to come in and they're going to take you as a, a slave state. They're going to take you captive. And it's going to be part of the discipline of Judah. Well, you can imagine how Judah respond, uh, how Habakkuk responded as, as Judah would respond. Wait a minute, God, how could you do this? How could you use a wicked people to judge bad people? How could you use wicked people like the Babylonians to judge the Judah, the Judites who, yes, they're not doing the right things, but they're still your people? How could you do that, God? And God responds. Remember in chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run to the watchtower. I'm going to run to the tower. I'm going to watch and see how you're going to play this out. How are you going to do that? I'm, I'm going to watch for what you're going to say. And God responds and says, hey, write it down. It's going to happen. Game over. Write it in stone, in fact, he says. And then God goes on and says, because here's what I'm asking. The just shall live by faith. He calls him back again and says, if you want to be a part of the righteous, the righteous live by faith. Now in the New Testament, we see this idea flip. That quote is over and over again. The book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. The idea is that those who are faith-filled will also be righteous in their lives. Will also be righteous in their actions. That faith then leads to righteousness. A righteous person demonstrates their faith. And so he tells them, listen, you got to trust me here. The just live by faith. And then we see a contrast in chapter 2 between a righteous person who lives by faith and the Babylonians who God will eventually judge. God will avenge Judah. God will judge the agent of judgment. He will come against Babylon. We talked about last week this idea of the path of least resistant. What, what path are we going down? Are, are we choosing the path like Babylon and eventually God will judge? Or are we choosing the path of what Habakkuk should be called to, the people of God, a, a path of faith? 
And that is the question that we're asked with. Now, I want to take a look at the end of chapter 2 because we see at the end of the chapter 2 this very poetic statement. It's a call to the nation. And it says this in verse 20. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I want you to notice that chapter 2 ends with a call to silence. What Habakkuk is saying is, listen to this, pay attention, be silent in the land, listen to what God is saying. All of a sudden, we see something changing in Habakkuk. All of a sudden, something begins to click. What he sees that contradicts what he believes begins to come together. Now, now when I read this, when I read the story of Habakkuk, I, I can't help but to think, Last week I was able to, to go back to Maryland and uh, I was there speaking and kind of talking about the book that I wrote and, and preaching. Uh, I have some different places I'll be preaching this year to, to kind of promote the book a little bit, but really preach the gospel. And, and I was in Maryland uh, there and, and I was able to go early and had a couple of little meetings and things that I was able to be a part of, some coaching opportunities as, as well. And uh, I got to stay, go back and stay with my mom. My family came and joined me on Friday, but I was there a little bit earlier in the week, and so I was able to stay with my mom. And you know, it's always a good thing for Mama Bear when, when the child comes home and, and sleeps in his old bedroom, right? I mean, my mom was so happy and thrilled and proud of that moment. And so I came home, and I stayed in my own bedroom uh, there with her. And I lived in a row house in the west side of my city. It's true. I was lived in the hood. And so it was kind of cool to go back, and uh, I stayed in my own bedroom. But, but I was reminiscing about being a kid there. And, and I remember I... I was, I was laying there one night, and I was thinking about this story of back years ago. Uh, I remember I, I had the kind of the back bedroom of the house. It's kind of a duplex row house type, type thing. And, and I had the back bedroom, and off the back bedroom, there was an alley behind us, and then another house, and just rows of houses everywhere. And, and I remember one night, I, I watched the movie Batman. And that night, remember when you were a kid and you would go to sleep and it was on your mind? It was the, the movies rolling through your mind. And I remember looking out the back window. It was like the middle of the night. I remember waking up and I looked out the window and it's a true story. I saw what looked like Batman. Like I saw Batman in the window. And the window had a shade over it, but I could see behind the shade and the lights from the city kind of were shining in. And I could see what looked like Batman. And I was a little bit scared. I remember as a kid, I kind of pulled the covers up a little higher because what I saw was what I thought was the silhouette of Batman. And so I was a little bit afraid, and then I was like, wait a minute, this is awesome. Maybe he's coming to make me Robin, and I'm going to be his counterpart. And so there was a little bit of excitement, but I didn't know whether to get up because was it, was it Robin? Was it somebody dressed up like, like Batman? Was it really Batman? And uh, so I got up, I remember I flipped the light on, and I looked out the window, and lo and behold, off kind of the back uh, porch roof, there was a cat that silhouette walked past the window and it shined some ears and it just so happened the way that cat walked across, it looked like Batman. You ever do that where, where you see something in the dark and you think it's one thing, it's somebody waving, it's a, it, it's a person standing there, it's a silhouette of somebody with a knife going like this and all of a sudden you flip the light on and you realize, wait, it's just a chair or it's just a coat or it's just, right, you ever do that? Maybe as a kid, maybe even as an adult, right? You still do that and you flip the light and you realize, oh wait, that's just whatever it is. That's the picture I get when I'm reading this chapter of Habakkuk. What happens all of a sudden is Habakkuk is looking in the dark. And what is, what is interesting, isn't it true, we, we tend to have this idea, we, we're quick to jump to the conclusion that God has no idea what he's going to do or no idea what he's doing because we have no clue what he's doing. 
And so we have this idea of darkness when it comes to God. But all of a sudden, what we find in chapter 3 is a light bulb goes on for Habakkuk. Finally, he's getting where the journey that God is taking him on. He's finally understanding this, this perspective that God is trying to bring. It's almost as if the light switch goes on in the dark. We find all of a sudden a change of posture in Habakkuk. We find all of a sudden that what he sees begins to understand what he believes. Now, when I read this chapter, I, I can't help but to think of an illustration that has been very helpful for me. I want to share it with you this morning. It's been helpful for me in my journey. Uh, this really came years ago. I remember uh, hearing this speaker who wrote a book. It was a speaker called Seth Godin. He's not necessarily a Christian. He seems to be a God-fear, but not necessarily a Christian. But he wrote a book called The Dip. And uh, The Dip is all about when to quit, and it's about this dip that happens in life. But many, uh, many pastors have kind of transitioned this to, to our spiritual lives, and it really does relate. It really does relate. It's interesting how uh, some of the business principles really come from godly principles, and this one certainly does, this idea of the dip. And I think it relates to the story of a backing, and I want to show it to you. I want to show it to you because I think it, it really, if you get this, it kind of gives you the story of what Habakkuk is going through in an unknown, difficult season. So I want to show it to you. Here's what the dip really is. The dip says this. The dip says we all start on this journey. For you and I, it's a journey with Christ. And that journey begins not by our own doing, but by the goodness of God, right? God reaches into our soul, reaches into our heart, awakens us to himself, takes the scales off our eyes, and saves us. And what happens? All of a sudden, we begin on this journey. And we very quickly on this journey find ourselves at this pinnacle moment, right? Do you remember back when you first came to know Jesus Christ? Wasn't there an excitement about it? Wasn't there a thrill about it? I mean, for some of us, right, it was all of a sudden that we started to read this book, the Bible, and it became real to us, like, like it was actually written for me. We began to hear sermons, and it seemed like the pastor was preaching right to me, like somehow he was watching my life when no one was looking. Prayer was abundant. Like it was as if you had this direct connection with God, right? When we first come to Christ, we have these these. These, uh, these experiences, uh, these experiences that are vibrant and new and fresh and exciting, we wanted to tell everybody about it. Man, you wouldn't believe what God has done in my life. Right? This is the journey, right? It, it begins with this pinnacle moment, but slowly what happens? Slowly what happens is life begins just to continue normally. Right? Uh, this, this change of life doesn't change everything in life. Right? Life continues to happen. I still have to go to work. I still have this marriage and this family, and I still have to do these things. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves kind of in a slump. We find ourselves overwhelmed with the whole hum of life. We find ourselves going through the motions again. And then we face what Henry Blackaby, if you've ever read the book Experiencing God, he calls it well. I would recommend that book for any Christian. The word, uh, he calls this, this moment a crisis of belief. I'm going to put a CB here. It's a crisis of belief. All of a sudden, something happens in my life that creates a crisis. A, a family member dies. A marriage gets difficult. Uh, something happens to one of our children. Something happens with my job. Money is running out. All of a sudden, I can't keep up with the bills. Something happens, and there is a crisis of belief. Something that stops it in its track. All of a sudden, the whole hum becomes crisis. And I wonder, what in the world is God going to do in this moment? Now, can I tell you? What usually happens, and all of us face these moments in our journeys, all of, these, all of us face the dips of life, the valleys of life. We all face them. But the instinct for most of us is to do two things. 
naturally, we do two things. First of all, we try to run back. We, we, we deny the situation, the crisis, and we try to run back and manufacture where we were at our pinnacle. So we try to manufacture the moment that was so exciting, the moment was so memorable. We try to manufacture what we felt back then. And so we try to get back in the Word a little bit. We try to prayer. We try to get that excitement back. And, and so we do these things hoping to get back to where we were. The, the other thing we do, some people don't just kind of reject this moment. Some people actually get angry with God. Some people get angry with God, and what they do is they tend to run back to this point. Now, not, that doesn't mean they're an unbeliever. It just means they're angry with God, and they're just like, I'm done. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to engage with those Christians anymore. I'm just done. And while they intellectually still know God, and whether that profession of faith was real or not, that's between them and God, what happens is they run and begin to act like unbelievers. Have you ever seen that in life? Where people that profess Christ act like they don't know Christ? Why is that? Usually it's because a crisis of belief leads them back to this moment, and they say, you know what, I'm going to go back like I was in the beginning. Now what's interesting, and this is the point, this is Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk runs into a crisis of belief. He runs into a moment where he says, God, how long? God, why? What is going on in my life? And can I tell you a secret? And I found this in my own life, and can I tell you, if you get this, if you understand this, chapter 3 comes to life for us, all of a sudden, the, the valleys of our life, the situations of our life, the dips of our life, now makes sense. Because I tell you this, this is the secret. God works most in the valleys of life. This is the arena where God works the most. God works in these seasons in a way that you and I cannot imagine. And it's when we understand how to endure the valleys of life, how not to run, how to wait on God, when we do that, all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on, the light comes up, and we begin to see God in a fresh new way so that he takes us to the next place he wants to use us greatly. But it takes us enduring those valleys. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we endure through faith? How do, how do the just live by faith? Chapter 3 gives us the answer. It's a change of tone that we're going to see here. Take a look with me. I want to give us four thoughts from chapter 3 that tell us how do we endure the valleys of life? How do we endure the questions of life? How do we endure the seasons of darkness in our lives? Take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The first thing we see on this journey that Habakkuk has been on as we come to chapter 3 is this. Number one, that he recalibrates his heart through prayer. For you and I, when we face the valleys of life, when we face the dips of life, the first thing we do is begin to recalibrate our hearts through prayer, to recalibrate, to, to refocus our lives through prayer. I want you to see here, it says a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. This prayer is emotional, it's honest, it's transparent, it's poetic, it's even gritty. In fact, it's absolutely beautiful. And I don't know about you, but prayer sometimes is hard work, isn't it? I mean, when you're in the valley, praying isn't easy because it doesn't feel like God is listening Prayer is difficult, but it's in this moment, in the moment where he has no clue, earth be silent, that he comes back to the Lord in prayer. In fact, I love this. Notice the word shigianoth. Some of you probably read through that and you were like, what in the world does that word mean? Shigianoth. It's a cool word to say. 
The word actually is the word song. It's this type of song. What he's doing is he's praying in song form. But it's not just any song. In fact, the word Sheenoth has this idea. Um, it, it's a type of song with, with a wild, passionate beat. It's the idea of a song that has some passion behind it and has rapid changes in tempo. That's what Sheenoth means. It's a rapid change in tempo. If I could define this in our culture today, this song that he's writing, this prayer that he's bringing, is a, it's a rap song. It's hip-hop. That was a joke. I thought it would be better than that. <laughs> it's a song with rapid change. And no appreciation for the hip-hop here. I mean, my goodness. The point is, it's intense. It's a driving song. It's meant to change tunes. It's meant to create chaos. When you hear it, it would be like chaos. And so he's telling us what this song should sound like, this prayer sounds like. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, oh, Lord, do I fear. Notice he says, God, I've heard of your fame. I've heard of all that you've done. I've heard of the work that you've done, and it's caused me to fear. I love this. He says, I'm afraid. Now, isn't it interesting, all of a sudden, how his fear has changed? In chapter 1, his fear was what he was seeing in the injustices, the circumstances in Judah. He saw the people of God, and there was chaos, and so he was afraid. There was fear. And then he heard the report of God, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians were coming. And so he wasn't only afraid of his circumstances, he was afraid of the Chaldeans. And all of a sudden now, his fear changes, and now it's directed to God. Now all of a sudden he says, it's not them I fear, God. It's you. I get your work. I know what you've done. Notice his fear shifts, and now his fear to God. By the way, this word fear doesn't necessarily mean afraid, like scared to death. It literally means awe and reverence. There's a bit of shakiness to it, but it's an awe and reverence, reverence for God. He says, God, I get now that you're in control. All of a sudden, his eyes turn from the circumstance in the Chaldeans, and he says, God, I get that you are in control. Now, isn't it true that in the valley of life, Worship is the farthest thing from our mind, isn't it? Yet worship is the thing that we need to do the most. Worship and prayer would have been the farthest thing from Habakkuk's mind. Yet in this moment, he says, I pray. I pray, I sing, because I know who you are and I fear you. Now I want you to notice the threefold prayer here. Now, I actually, I believe this is a prayer worth repeating. Not verbally, not, not exactly, not chronologically, but, but this idea of what he says here is like a prayer that you and I should put in our repertoire because it's a prayer that, that is honest to God. Take a look at what he says. In the midst of the years, revive it. The first thing he prays is, God, do it again. Do it again. God, you have worked. I know your works. I've seen you work. Will you do it again? In the midst of captivity, in the midst of being taken captive by the Babylonians, will you work again? In the valley of life, Will you do your work in me again? By, by the way, I love the word revive here in Hebrew. I remember learning this word in Hebrew class when I was in seminary. It's the Hebrew word chaya. Chaya. Now here's how I remember it. Chaya. In fact, I want to teach you this Hebrew word. Everybody on the count of three. Chaya. Ready? One, two, three. Chaya. A little spit coming out of your mouth in the beginning. Chaya. It's the word revive. And it literally, it's the word life. And it, it has this idea of to give life again. God, in the season that's the valley, will you give me life again? In the unknown seasons, in the dark moments, will you bring life again? I've heard of you. I know what you do. I know your character. Bring life. Notice, secondly, he says, not only do it again, but would you make it known? Make it known. In the midst of the years, make it known. 
God, will you be clear in those years where it's dark, in the valley seasons, will you make your plan known? Will you make your will known? Will you show me your ways, oh God? Direct my paths is what he's saying. And then thirdly, he says, in your wrath be merciful. Now I love this, he's connecting to the character of God. Here we see Habakkuk in genuineness saying, God, I'm praying to you, but in genuineness, he's calling out to the character of God. What I love about this is prayer is not merely you and I coming to God and saying, God, here's my situation, help me. God, here's my need, help me. That's what we, I know, I don't know about you, but I think of when I think of prayer. When I think of prayer, I think of coming to God and saying, God, here it is on a platter, help me. But what prayer actually is, Habakkuk shows us, prayer in the valley moments is saying, God, I know who you are, help me. Do you see the difference? We, we think of prayer as, God, here's my need, help me. But Habakkuk shows us, and the Psalms show us over and over again, that true prayer is coming to God saying, God, I know who you are. You're a God of mercy. You're a God of grace. You're a God of justice. Here's my need. God, I know your character. Help me. That's what we find in Habakkuk. Habakkuk comes to God and says, God, I know your character. I know you're merciful. Remember, have your way, oh God, in my life. Prayer, recalibrate our hearts through prayer. In the the dip seasons, we recalibrate. Now notice, secondly, secondly, all of a sudden, for almost the rest of this chapter, he begins to recall all of God's past faithfulness. This is the second point, that we're called to recall, to recount God's past faithfulness. Notice what he does here. This this is pretty powerful. He, He begins to just state history. He reminds himself how God has been faithful over and over again. Take a look at verse three. It says, God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power before him when pestilence and plague followed at his heels. By the way, this moment happened in, in Deuteronomy when when Moses was there getting the law the second time and get, getting ready to send the people, there's one last moment where God shows his glory to Moses, and that's this Mount Paran. This is Mount Taman. It's, it's, the, it's the place where they prepare to go into the promised land. Notice it continues, verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He took, looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. He says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This is when they came in the promised land. They passed through the Cushanites and the Midianites. And he says, I saw them tremble. Then he says, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. Remember Joshua chapter 10, as they went and did battle with the Amorites, Joshua called out and the sun and the moon stood still. We find that in Joshua chapter 10. He says, I remember this. At the light of your arrows, they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the people, the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. You laid them bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Do you see over and over again, he's recounting, he's recalling the faithfulness of God. In fact, do you notice the phrase Selah? 
Selah happens three times in these verses. The word Selah actually means musical rest. It's a pause in the, in, in the, the, the song. It's a pause where you're supposed to reflect on what's been said before. And so he says, hey, remember, remember God, you were in Taman. Remember the work that you did there? Remember the flashes of your glory, the Shekinah glory of God that showed up in Deuteronomy? Do you, do you remember when the curtains of Kushan and the Midianites fell and trembled? Remember that? I mean, remember God, you did that. That wasn't us, you did that. Remember when Joshua had the sun and the moon stand still? That wasn't us. Selah, pause. Remember, recount all the past faithfulness of God. By the way, if you like to underline, go through and underline just the action words. There are over 30 verbs, near 30 verbs in these verses. I mean, I mean just a few. Verse 3, God came. Verse 6, he stood and measured. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Notice, you went out, you marched, you came, you, right, you did these things, you, you unsheathed your bow. This is God's movements. What, what Habakkuk is doing is reminding himself of the movements of God in his life. He's reminding himself of God, as God has moved in the past through the people of Israel, the people of Judah. Remember what you've done, oh God? I remember it. And then he comes to verse 13, he says, you went out for the salvation of your people. You've delivered them over and over and over again. What we have here is Habakkuk showing God's highlight reel. He's saying, God, this is what you've done over and over. You did that, not us. In the darkest moments of a nation, you were there and you were at work. By the way, this reminds us as we read this of two things, right? God is not short of power. I mean, you read these words, he is powerful. I mean, the waters rage because of him. The, the sun and moon stand still because of him. He, he's not shown in power. But secondly, he doesn't give up on his people. I mean, that's the whole point of this is he says, you went out for the salvation of your people. You protected your people. You protected your anointed. You over and over again delivered your people. So, so what are the lessons that Habakkuk is trying to recall? He, he's remembering and then repeating what God has done. Now, for you and I today. Can I tell you what's interesting? The Bible never tells us something once. I find it pretty interesting that the, the Bible constantly is repeating itself. Like if you've been at church for a while, like you've been coming to church for a while, and you listen to messages or you listen to podcasts or those type of things, you know what's interesting is you'll find over and over and they just keep repeating. Now some of us, we get to a point where we want something new, but you know what's interesting? The Bible doesn't do that. It constantly is repeating itself. Why? Because it wants us to remember, recall, and then resuscitate, just go back to it, and refresh, and it, repeat it. In fact, I love Psalm 103. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The idea is that you and I would remember all that God has done, all that God has done for us. And can I tell you a secret, tell you this truth? Our spiritual health in the midst of the valleys, our spiritual health in the midst of the valleys of life, the dips of life, our spiritual health will be based upon how often and how regularly we remember God's past faithfulness. I can tell you that. In moments of difficulty, in seasons that are unknown, in questions toward God, in these moments we wonder what God is doing, our spiritual health will be determined by how often we go back and say, God, I remember that you've done this. I remember that you've done this. Now think about this for you and I today. Isn't it true that there is more to celebrate and remember for us than there was for Judah? Isn't it true? 
Right, for Judah, they were given a land physically on earth. For you and I, we are giving a kingdom, given a kingdom not of this world. That Christ, God, came in the flesh, died on the cross, rose again, wakens our lives to him. All of a sudden, what we remember is far more powerful than just splitting waters. Far more powerful than nations being destroyed. Far more powerful, why? Because we've been given not a land here on earth. We've been given an eternal kingdom to live for. Think about that. Whatever you're facing today, whatever you're going through, you and I have all the more things to recall in our lives to say, God, wow, I remember that you've worked in this way in my life. You have saved me. You have rescued me. When life is sapped of strength, I remember all that you've done in my life. I remember all these things. And isn't it true, when I've walked with Jesus through enough yesterdays, I can trust him with my tomorrows. Isn't that true? When I've walked with Jesus through enough yesterdays, and I've gotten through it, I've seen his faithfulness, I can walk through whatever tomorrow brings. Now, as we read this, what's interesting here is if you just read it at face value, it seems that Habakkuk is talking only about God in the past. But in the Hebrew, this, these words, these 30 verbs that we find in that short section actually aren't in the past tense. They're in what is called the perfect tense. Now, why is that important? That's all Hebrew to us. But, but what that means is this. What Habakkuk is doing is not only stating and reminiscing about the past, he's actually giving a, a picture of what the future looks like. In fact, he's calling himself into future faith. He's saying, listen, not only did you do this in the past, but this also could be done in the future. This also is the way you work, God. And by the way, some believe this is a prophetic vision a prophetic picture of who God is and what God will do in the end, that he will save his people, he will save his anointed, he will come and devour the wicked, right? These things are still true in, in the injustice of the world. These things are still yet to happen. They happen, and yet they're yet to happen as well. But I want you to notice a little change that happens in verse 16. Because he's talking about God. God, you, you, you've, you've marched, you came, you went, you did this. But notice verse 16. I hear... Notice it changes to personal now. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He says, I hear and my body trembles. But I will wait patiently. Number three here is this, that we resign ourselves to God's work in the present. What happens after he recalls all of the past faithfulness of God, now Habakkuk says, I'm going to resign myself to the fact that you are at work, God. Notice he doesn't deny his feelings here, does he? Notice he doesn't deny what he's going through. The, the enemy's still going to come in, and he says, I hear this, and my body trembles. In fact, the word here, body, is not the word body physically. It's the word bow. He says, my bowels are messed up. I'm sick over this. My, my lips are quivering. I, I can't help but to cry. He, he says, I'm thinking about the fact that, that this rottenness is going to enter, and I know it's going to happen, God. I know this difficulty is going to come. We get this impression he's shaking, being sick, even about ready to pass out. I, I read this, and I can't help but to, to think back uh, years ago. I was, had a jury duty. Um, this is going back way years, and it was in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is really interesting because uh, PG County is considered kind of a, it's a crime area. Uh, there's some good areas as well, and we live there, but there's certain areas that are pretty high in crime, especially in Maryland. And so I had jury duty. I don't know about you. I'm one of those weird guys when it comes to jury duty. I'm like, sign me up. Like, I think it's cool. And it's kind of like the court cases and being in there. And, you know, you go back to all these old, you know, 
all these old lawyer shows. I just, I think it's really interesting. And so whenever there's, I mean, if they could have a volunteer, I would volunteer a couple times a year. I would, but they don't do that that way. They have to write to, you know, they send you stuff. But I love jury duty. Anyway, so I was doing jury duty, and I was there waiting to be called into a case. And, and so we had a little break in the midst of waiting, and I actually went into a courtroom just to listen, because, you know, many of them are, are public. And so I went in to listen, and I just happened to go in when they were reading the verdict to this gentleman. And he came in, and he was kind of in chains, and he was there, and I didn't get to hear the whole case, but I got to hear the verdict. And I remember watching, and it's kind of painted in my mind, as he stood there, and the verdict was read, guilty, and he began to, like, shake. I mean, just almost profusely, like, overwhelmed with emotion. Tears began to come, to come out of his eyes. And it was in that moment he fainted, like he fell. And I was like, wow, I just happened to come in in the most dramatic case. I, you know, I wish I would have been on that case. Like, that would have been interesting. And this guy just falls over, overwhelmed with emotion. That's the image I get with Habakkuk. By the way, you ever feel that way? Right, you get that bad report. You wonder what God is doing. Bills aren't adding up. You just feel sick. You feel like you're going to faint. That's Habakkuk. But I want you to see, right, he's in the valley. But notice, he says, yet, yet. This small yet powerful word, yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. God, yet I'm going to wait. Remember, we talked about being patient, waiting on God. Yet I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for you, God. I, I know you're at work. I, I'm resigning myself to the fact that you have a plan in the midst of the sea. Life doesn't always iron itself out, does it? Sometimes we have to resign ourselves to the fact that God's ways are not our ways. See, Habakkuk here doesn't still feel awesome. He feels miserable, and yet he's trusting God. His resolve is, God, I believe you. I believe you're in control. Can I tell you a little secret? I think right here, I think some of the reasons that we tend to run back to manufacture an experience or we run back and say, well, I'm just not going to trust God anymore. The reason we do that is because we believe two gospel-assaulting lies. These are lies from the pit of hell in themselves, and we begin to believe them when we go through difficulties. One of them is that God doesn't care. Right? We get in, this, in the valley, and we think, well, God doesn't care. He's the one that allowed this crisis of belief, and he must not care about me. Or secondly, I don't need him. For some, it's God doesn't care. For others, it's I don't need him. I'll, I'll figure this out for myself. I'm going to solve my own life. And both of those things are gospel-assaulting lies. They are lies. They are not true. No, instead, we need to wait patiently. Here's what, what Habakkuk does. is He says, I'm going to wait patiently. Why? Because I don't get to see God at work in my life until I wait patiently on who he is and what he's doing. And, and that leads to the end of this. Notice what it says, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the saws. Notice it's a total economic collapse. He says there's no fruit on the vine, there's no figs in bloom, there's no cattle in the stall. When that happens, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I would take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. I write this to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the last point, and that is this. Rejoice in what God will accomplish for you in the future. Rejoice in what God will accomplish through you. So we pray, we recalibrate, we recall all that God has done, we now resign ourselves to God's plan. And guess what? 
I rejoice because there's an upswing coming. Right, that's the picture. This is true in our journeys, in our spiritual lives all the time. We go through valleys and there's another season. We go through valleys and another season. And so my goal is to rejoice. God, I trust in you and so I rejoice. Notice he says, though the fig tree not blossom, though the, there's no fruit in the fields, the fields are, are wiped away, economic collapse comes, yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in you, Lord. Joy is very different than happiness, isn't it? Happiness is based upon our happenings. Happiness is based upon circumstance. Joy is founded deep in our souls based upon God. By the way, I don't believe an unbeliever can be joy-filled. I don't believe that. I believe joy is only connected as it's connected with God. Why? Because joy is deeply spiritual, right? Joy isn't letting our feelings define us. I, I, I always tell myself this when I feel something. My feelings have no brains. They don't. My feelings have no brains. I've got to tell myself how my feelings should be interpreted. Right? So I have these feelings, and those feelings tell me to go this direction, to go run away, to go here, go there. But then I have to tell my, I have to give my feelings instructions. That's what joy is. Joy, notice it, he says in verse, verse uh, 16, I will quietly wait. And we come to verse 18, yet I will rejoice. Notice joy is a choice. It's a choice that you and I have to make, a posture of the heart, to say, God, in this valley, I'm going to have joy. Why? Because I know there's a season of highs coming. I know that you're going to deliver. Yes, it might be difficult for the rest of my life, but I know. If the only thing I have to look forward to is eternity, I have that to look forward to. And so joy begins to overwhelm me. It's the language of the scripture. By the way, all through the Bible, joy is connected to the work of God. The imperative of joy is connected to the indicative of God's good work. It's what Philippians 4.4 4 says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Notice, rejoice where? Not in the circumstances, not in my situation, not in what I'm walking through. Rejoice in the Lord. And, and in Philippians 4, he gives us all the things that God has done. Philippians 1 through 3 is Christ has done this. He humbled himself, went, went to the cross, obedient to the point of death. All of a sudden, I have a reason to rejoice. Why? Because of what God has done and what God will do. And I want to show you this. He says, yet I would rejoice. Why can he say I have joy? There are three things we see rather quickly. He says, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Why? God's supremacy never changes. Notice there he says, I rejoice in the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name of the covenant name of God. Notice it says after that, God the Lord is my strength. Not the same, is it? God the Lord. That's Elohim. That's the, the generic name of God, Elohim. But here it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. It's I am. He's saying, God, you never change. You're not I was. You're not I will be. You are I am. You're right now in this situation, and that never changes. You're God. In the midst of my valley, you remain the same. Secondly, not only does his supremacy never change, notice his salvation never ceases. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Notice he personalizes it. God, your, your salvation never ceases. Constantly at work in my life, you are saving me right now. I am saved, yet you're saving me. I am saved, yet you're delivering me. I'm delivered and free, and yet you're making me free. God's salvation is constantly at work. And then lastly, his strength never collapses. The world around us may collapse, but God's strength. You notice he says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. Now you and I read that and think, like the deer, they run out and get hit by cars? Is that what he's saying? 
in in the mountains, the deer, the mountain deer are, man, they're 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 swift, but they're also steady. They can climb areas that you and I can't get to. They can escape in, in ways that, that gives them protection from the enemies. And then he says this. He says, he makes me to tread on my high places. Notice he's even talking about a high place that will come, a place of safety, a place of refuge, a place of shelter. He says, God, you allow me to have shelter. Even though I'm experiencing this, I'm going to rejoice because I know this is true. I know that my feet can be steady. And I know that I can tread on high places. When God becomes your strength, when God becomes our joy, this is what it looks like. I'm steady. I'm safe. Yes, I'm walking through difficulty, but I'm steady. I'm in a high place. I'm, I've run to the shelter. Now, I want you to think about Habakkuk. He, he's gone from the valley to a tower to now he says, God, you've put me in the high places. I can trust in you. This is Habakkuk's song. You know, too many Christians, I believe, only have God in the good seasons. Too many Christians say, I'll take God, I'll take him when it's here. But can I tell you, God is not just the God of the good seasons. If you only have God in the good seasons, you don't have the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible that shows himself mighty and strong, it's in this season. I mean, just read the Bible over and over and over again. Joseph in prison, Daniel in, in the lions. and Over and over, it's God in the midst of the unknown moments that God is at work most. It's in the night shift of life. And when I know that God isn't just a God of the good seasons, he's also a God of the bad seasons. He's a God that's there, present. We then can able, we're able to say in that moment, God, even still, whatever I'm walking through, even still, I will worship you. I will praise you. You call upon me, and I will answer, God, because I hear you. I understand you. I get what you're doing. Listen, in your life this morning, some of you are facing right now the fig tree's not blooming. Right now, you're walking through a situation, and the fruit is not growing on the ground. There's some of you, there's a season coming, and the cattle are not going to be in the stall. Uh, there's a, a, a time coming, and the fields are going to be empty. Will you praise God then? Will you recalibrate your heart? Recall all that God has done in the past to save you. Will you then say, God, in this moment, I I'm, going to, I'm going to resign myself to your work. I'm going to resign. I I'm trembling, but I resign myself. And I'm going to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Is that the posture of your heart? If not, you will try to run out of these moments instead of adoring these moments knowing the best is yet to come. Would you stand with me as we pray? And we're going to end with this song, this declaration, I will call upon the Lord. I will call upon him and he hears, he answers. We can trust him. God, I want to thank you for your word. You are a God not just of the mountains, but the God of the valleys. You're God who is faithful and difficult. And just like a back of God, God, we walk in unknown seasons, in dark moments, in, in moments where we ask why and how long. And yet, God, you are faithful. You are faithful. And so, God, we recall your faithfulness. We resign ourselves and we rejoice. Why? Because you're at work. And God, even if our suffering is for our life, even if it's suffering unto death, God, we have eternity with you. And so, God, we, of all people, have a reason to rejoice, a reason far greater than the Judites, far greater than Habakkuk, because we know, we know the eternal hope we have in you, that you came and died, that you rose again, so that our hope is not in vain. 
that hope does not disappoint us. And so, God, may we rejoice in a God whose supremacy never changes, whose strength never fails, and whose salvation never ceases. All for us, for your glory, Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Let's sing this song to him.